Hey, it's Michael. Before we begin, I wanted to share with you a new way to experience how to start a war. Throughout every week, I'm going to start sharing bonus content. Photographs and videos of the events and the people at the center of this story. I'll add new details and more context that didn't make it into the podcast. You can access this channel by following How to Start a War Pod on Instagram. Thanks for following. Now, on with the story. of W.O.L. in the nation's capital, the Coast to Coast Mutual Network presents Fulton Lewis, Jr. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. As fast and dramatic news from Europe tonight, tense news that makes your spine tingle and your heart stop cold, that reassurance we enjoyed last night following Chancellor Hitler's speech at Nuremberg is gone today. It's gone as completely as if his words had never been spoken. Yesterday, you remember, Mr. Hitler said he wants peace. He wants to settle Germany's difficulty with Czechoslovakia in a friendly way. He merely demands that the several million Germans who are living in the Sudeten territory, the western edge of Czechoslovakia, be protected and guaranteed their full rights. This morning, the cable wires were smoking with flash news. The president of Czechoslovakia declared martial law in that Sudeten territory. Military police took over the cities. According to the cable dispatches, there were tanks in the streets, and the law of the army went into effect. When that news reached Berlin, it was like the sputtering fire reaching the end of a fuse. There was an explosion. Chancellor Hitler flashed back an ultimatum to Czechoslovakia. It said that Germany will not stand for this martial law in the Sudeten territory. It demanded that Czechoslovakia revoke that order and revoke it within six hours. And the implication was that if the ultimatum is ignored, Germany is ready to act. And all that has very ugly similarity to the days of 1914, when Austria was sending ultimatums to little Serbia. And it's not necessary for me to say that the world is upside down tonight. I'm Michael Trapani, and this is How to Start a War, a story from the past that can help us understand our world today. While the characters we follow are at the center of this story, they are not the heroes. This is not that kind of story. This story is about what happens when good people do nothing to stop the worst people on Earth, while they still can. Let's continue. Chapter 5. Appeasement. It's been six months since Austria fell. The British Prime Minister is sweating and tightly gripping the arms of his seat. The 69-year-old Neville Chamberlain had never flown in a plane before, but today it was the only option. Today, he needed to prevent a war, a war that might break out at any moment. Over the last six months, it had become obvious to the major Allied powers, England and France, that Hitler would not be satisfied with the annexation of Austria alone. In May, rumors began to fly that Germany was making moves to annex its other neighbor, on its eastern border, Czechoslovakia, as well, perhaps even by force. But why Czechoslovakia? The country itself was new, only about 20 years old as a nation. It was an experiment that was established at the end of the Great War. 
As all of the old monarchies came crashing down at the end of the war, those living in the region east of Germany determined to create a true republic. A multi-ethno-state of Czechs, Slovaks, Germans, Hungarians, and more. It was a radical idea for Europe that people of different histories and heritage could live together and govern themselves. To Adolf Hitler, Czechoslovakia was an abomination. It was the exact opposite of Hitler's backwards, racist vision for a grand Aryan ethno-state, governed by his powerful German Reich. According to Hitler, this fledgling pseudo-nation was nothing more than greedy Czechs oppressing its minority German population that lived there. You only have to look at a map to see that Czechoslovakia, especially a region known as the Sudetenland, was literally piercing into Germany, like a peninsula surrounded on three sides by a German ocean. Now, Czechoslovakia was well aware of the risk that Germany posed to their safety. And so, years ago, when Hitler began making his very public statements that all German people should belong to a single German state, the Czech government knew what that could mean. So they began to build fortifications on their border with Germany, in the event that Germany ever attacked them. And I need to emphasize, these were not just fortifications. I'm talking about what was perhaps the most fortified border in Europe, second only to the famous Maginot Line on the French border. Except the Czech border had an added advantage, a wall of mountains. 10,000 forts were peppered through the Czech mountain range and 250 large forts as strategic points throughout the line. It was formidable, maybe even impossible to breach. This is what Hitler was told by his generals. But what did they know? These were the same generals who said that the annexation of Austria without firing a shot was impossible. To Hitler, the generals were defeatists. They were scared, and they needed his leadership to push them beyond their comfort zones. And last night, he did just that. Hitler decided to do what any dictator does when they want to be aggressive. He would orchestrate a crisis, an event that would give him the justification he needed to paint himself, not as an aggressor, but as a savior, a defender of the human rights of his own people. Here was the plan. Remember when I described how Czechoslovakia was piercing into Germany, where all of those mountain fortifications were? That region of Czechoslovakia was called the Sudetenland. You heard it in the broadcast that Hitler was demanding that the, quote, Germans living in the Sudetenland region needed to get their full rights. That's the region we're talking about. It's in Czechoslovakia, right on the border of Germany. And it's called the Sudetenland. The Sudetenland, more than any other part of Czechoslovakia, was heavily populated by ethnic Germans. And because of this, the area naturally had the most Nazi sympathizers, too. A few years ago, Hitler's government decided to secretly bankroll a Nazi sympathizer as the governor of that Sudeten region. So even though the Sudetenland was in Czechoslovakia, Hitler wanted a Nazi sympathizer to govern it and cause problems. And it worked. The Czech Nazi sympathizer was elected as governor of the Sudetenland. Once the Nazi sympathizing Sudeten governor came to power, Hitler secretly encouraged him to resist the central Czech government, to cause protests in the streets and call for their own independence from Czechoslovakia. Last night, Hitler made a fiery speech at Nuremberg, calling on the Germans who were getting oppressed in the Sudeten region to demand justice for themselves. And the Sudeten governor took Hitler's speech as a cue to start an open revolt against its central Czech government. And for a brief few days, there was open chaos in the Sudeten streets of Czechoslovakia. Now that the stage was set, Hitler played his hand. 
The German dictator openly declared an ultimatum against the Czech government. He said in his speech, Give the Germans living in Czechoslovakia back their rights, or we will take matters into our own hands. See how that worked? That night, every cabinet in Europe met in an emergency session. Jewish Czechs began to leave the country, gas masks began to be distributed, and Czechoslovakia began to prepare for an attack. It was at this time that the Prime Minister of Britain, Neville Chamberlain, decided that something needed to be done in order to prevent a catastrophe. He wrote a personal letter to Hitler, and it was rushed to him immediately. He wrote, In view of the increasingly critical situation, I propose to come over to you at once to see you, with a view of trying to find a peaceful solution. I propose to come across by air, and I am ready to start tomorrow. Please indicate the earliest time in which you can see me, and suggest a place of meeting. I should be grateful for a very early reply. Surprisingly, Chamberlain's invitation was accepted by Hitler. The two leaders would meet at the Berghof, Hitler's mountain estate, the next day. And so, the British Prime Minister boarded an airplane for the first time, began to sweat, and gripped the arms of his seat to set course for a fateful meeting. By 4 p.m., Prime Minister Chamberlain arrived in the driveway of Hitler's mountain estate, the Berghof, much like the Chancellor of Austria did six months ago. It was raining, and Hitler did not come down to greet the Prime Minister. Instead, he waited for him at the top of the stairs. Once inside, the Prime Minister was served tea, and the two leaders entered the study. Unlike during Chancellor Schuschnigg's first visit in February, the September rain had begun, and the grand vista of the Austrian Alps was not visible through the dense clouds that hung over the villa. The conversation began, like most negotiations with Hitler, extremely heated. Hitler spoke first and didn't stop. He began with a grand justification of his actions and why his demands were fair. He went on about his desire to unify the German people and prevent their oppression by non-German governments. This wasn't, according to Hitler, Germany threatening to invade Czechoslovakia, but a demand for German Czechs to be returned to Germany. Hitler said that he would not want a war, but it would be impossible for the threat of a war to stop him. After some time of ranting, the British Prime Minister was finally able to interject. Hold on a minute, hold on. There is one point on which I want to be clear, and I will explain why. You say that the three million Sudeten Germans must be included in the Reich. Would you be satisfied with that? Is there nothing more that you want? I ask because there are many people who think that that is not all that you wish to dismember Czechoslovakia. Hitler responded with more ranting, saying that it is intolerable that a second-rate country like Czechoslovakia could treat descendants of a mighty thousand-year Reich as an inferior. If a war, even a world war, breaks out over this, I will lead my people through it by the strength of will. Now, Prime Minister Chamberlain was known as a patient man, but there was definitely a limit to it. It was at this moment, into Hitler's one-sided rant of a negotiation, that Chamberlain did something that no one did. He interrupted Hitler. Look, if you're determined to settle the matter by force without even waiting for a discussion between us, why did you let me come? I've wasted my time. He then stood up out of his chair, as if he were about to leave the meeting. This seemed to work. Hitler was not used to such straight talk anymore. He finally came to the point and asked the question that he wanted to hear an answer to. Would 
Britain allow the Sudeten region to break off from Czechoslovakia or not? Chamberlain smiled. Ah, I'm glad we've finally gotten to the crux of the matter. Now, I cannot fully commit myself to an answer until I speak with my cabinet and the French, who, unlike us, are actually allies with Czechoslovakia. They will be a much more difficult sell. But to encourage Hitler, the British Prime Minister added, I personally think that the principle of your demands makes sense. I hope I can secure the approval of my cabinet to match my personal views. Translation I want to give you what you want, but others also have a say in this. Let me see what I can do. How's that for a politician? The meeting between the two powers had ended, with an agreement to meet again in the very near future, and a promise from Hitler that he would take no military action until the two leaders met again. Chamberlain seemed confident in his sizing up of Hitler after the meeting. In London, days later, he commented that, In spite of the hardness and ruthlessness I thought I saw in his face, I got the impression that here was a man who could be relied upon when he had given his word. The next few days were nerve-wracking for Hitler. As he awaited the reply from Britain, Hitler began to show signs of a complete nervous breakdown. He would have random outbursts of rage in meetings with his cabinet. On several occasions, at the climax of these shouting episodes, he would jump out of his chair, drop to the floor, and start flailing his body on the ground, and actually start chewing on the edge of a rug. This happened so often, in fact, that even lower-level Nazis began to whisper a new nickname for the Fuhrer. Teppichfreiser. Carpet Muncher. It had been a week since the first meeting between Hitler and Chamberlain, and the British Prime Minister flew to Germany again. This time, when he left London, he was met by heckles and boos from his own citizens. They had all heard the rumors that Chamberlain had talked the French and the Czechs into giving Hitler what he wanted, conceding to Hitler's demands. Those rumors were true. Over the past week, Chamberlain had lifted heaven and earth to get France to abandon their agreement to defend the Czechs and allow the Sudeten region to break off from Czechoslovakia and absorb itself into the Third Reich. When the Czechs realized that France would renege on their agreement, the president of Czechoslovakia saw that they had no choice. As he informed England and France of their reluctant agreement, he also wrote to them, We have been basely betrayed. And so, Chamberlain arrived for his second meeting with Hitler in Godesburg, the riverside town along the Rhine River. As Chamberlain rode in a car towards the hotel where the second meeting with Hitler was scheduled to take place, he looked out the window and smiled. There were flags lining the avenues, not only of the German swastika, but also the British flag of the Union Jack hanging alongside them. It put Chamberlain in an optimistic mood. Here he was, about to offer Hitler everything he wanted. This horrible matter would be settled today he would single-handedly prevent a war. The two leaders met in a conference room in the hotel that overlooked the river. They sat down, and Chamberlain began. After laborious negotiations, Herr Chancellor, I have convinced the British cabinet, the French government, and even Czechoslovakia to agree to your terms. He then paused, triumphantly, and waited for the Fuhrer's response. Hitler asked in an almost incredulous tone, Do I understand that the British, French, and Czech governments have agreed to transfer the Sudetenland to Germany? 
Yes, Chamberlain said with a growing smile. I'm terribly sorry, Hitler said, but after the events of the last few days, this plan is no longer of any use. There it is. Hitler had been given everything he wanted. Sudetenland, you got it. But that wasn't enough anymore. Hitler was doubling down and demanding more. Chamberlain literally jumped out of his chair. His face turned red. <laughs> I'm both disappointed and puzzled. You've gotten everything you demanded. Listen, I've risked my political career for this. I'm being accused of having sold and betrayed Czechoslovakia and yielding to dictators. Upon leaving London this morning, I was actually booed. Hitler's face remained unchanged. He seemed unconcerned with the British Prime Minister's political problems. He responded firmly. Secession alone is not enough. I want a full military occupation of the Sudetenland, and it must be done before the end of this month. Chamberlain sat back in his chair, deflated. Hitler seemed determined to use military force, even if an option for a peaceful resolution was delivered to him, gift-wrapped. At that moment, a German aide entered the room and handed Hitler an urgent message. Hitler read it, then gave it to his interpreter, saying, Read this to Mr. Chamberlain. The translator read it out loud for the Prime Minister. The President of Czechoslovakia has announced over the radio a general military mobilization of the country. The room went cold, silent. Hitler finally broke it and tossed the paper on his desk, folding his arms. Now, of course, the whole thing is over. The Czechs will not dream of ceding any territory to Germany now. Chamberlain, who was still holding on to a chance of peace, violently disagreed. The two men began to furiously argue about who mobilized first. The talks continued past midnight and into the early morning. Finally, Chamberlain was ready to walk out. He said, There is no further point in our conversations. I will simply take the demands back to England and get back to you. The Prime Minister said goodbye and turned to leave, but then stopped to say to Hitler, I believe that a relationship between us has grown over the last two days. I remain hopeful that we can overcome this crisis. Hitler returned the same pleasantries, thanking him for his words and expressing the same desire to settle the issue. He also reiterated that this would be the last territorial demand that Germany had in Europe. When Chamberlain finally got back to his hotel at two in the morning, a journalist asked him, Is the position hopeless, sir? The Prime Minister replied, I should not say that. It is up to the Czechs now. It is up to the Czechs now. Hitler was threatening to invade a free nation on its border for no good reason. But it was up to the Czechs to decide if the matter would be settled by negotiation or by bloodshed. Chamberlain returned to England to communicate Hitler's final demands. As it turned out, Chamberlain's cautious optimism was misplaced. Hitler's terms were rejected by the British cabinet, by France, and of course, Czechoslovakia. The three nations reluctantly prepared for a German attack and a very big war. On the day Hitler's terms were rejected, the French sent notice to the Czechs that France would begin to mobilize and come to their aid if an invasion took place. In Czechoslovakia, 800,000 men were called to the border, and they began to take their defense posts in the mountain fortifications. In France, it began its military mobilization. Altogether, it moved 65 divisions, over a million and a half men, 
to the German border. In Britain, the Royal Fleet, the most powerful navy on Earth, was mobilized, and the government declared a state of emergency. All children were to be evacuated from London. The Auxiliary Air Force was called up. Trenches were dug in Hyde Park. In Germany, seven German divisions were moved to the Czech border. Five divisions were mobilized in the Western Front to defend against a French attack. From all over the world, letters began to pour in to Berlin from leaders personally appealing to Hitler for peace. Even from the United States, American President Franklin Delano Roosevelt wrote to Hitler proposing an immediate conference with all nations to settle any differences. Roosevelt added that if a war did break out, the world would hold Hitler responsible. And what about Italy, Germany's strongest ally? There was nothing. No mobilization by Mussolini. No commitment to join the fray if Germany was attacked. Nothing. Back in Berlin, the German military high command were all in a deep state of concern. All of them knew the reality of the situation. Even if there was a clean war between Germany and Czechoslovakia, the odds of the German army piercing the Czech mountain fortifications would be a toss-up at best. And if they succeeded, how many men would they lose in the process? And if the French joined the Czechs, as they said they would, they would together outnumber the German army two to one. To put it bluntly, Germany trying to fight a two-front war against Czechoslovakia on one side and France on the other would be hopeless. It was then, for the first time, that Hitler showed a sign that he would leave the door open for peace. Maybe it was the military odds against Germany that looked worse by the day. Maybe it was the obvious lack of public support for the war, even within Germany. Hitler sent a telegram to London, to the British Prime Minister, saying, I should like to take this opportunity of once more sincerely thanking you, and to ask you to bring the government in Prague to reason at this very last hour. Hitler was making it clear that he was still open to a peaceful solution. Hitler's telegram arrived in London at 10.30 at night. Chamberlain immediately replied, seeing a chance to prevent a war from breaking out. He offered to arrange for a conference between Czechoslovakia, England, France, Italy, and Germany. He then sent another telegram. This one was to Rome, appealing to Mussolini to encourage his German ally to agree to the conference and help him avoid a war. In Berlin, at the Italian embassy, the phone rang on the desk of the Italian ambassador to Germany, Bernardo Atolico, a veteran diplomat with a long career as an Italian representative in the League of Nations. He had a raspy voice and a reputation for getting things done. He picked up the phone and heard on the other line who was calling him. The voice that broke through the telephone was Mussolini himself. This is the Duce speaking. Can you hear me? Yes, I hear you, Atolico replied. Ask immediately for a meeting with Hitler. Tell him the British government asked me to mediate in the Czech issue. The point of difference is very small. He must decide, but tell him that I favor accepting the suggestion. Do you hear me? Yes, I hear you. Hurry. And then he ran. The 58-year-old Italian ambassador Atolico ran out of his office, down the street, to the chancellery, up several flights of stairs, desperate to get the message to Hitler from the Italian Duce, before it was too late. It was only two and a half hours before Hitler's ultimatum was scheduled to expire. When he arrived, Hitler was notified of the Italian ambassador's presence, 
The Fuhrer stepped out of his meeting and came into the hallway, where he could see, coming from the other end of the hall, an out-of-breath Italian ambassador running towards him. Still 50 yards away, he shouted at the German dictator from down the hall. I have an urgent message to you from the Duce. He then read the message to Hitler. Then Mussolini would stand with him, but implored him to take the meeting that Chamberlain proposed. The clock struck 12 noon, two hours before Hitler's ultimatum with the Czechs was scheduled to run out. When Atolico finished his message, he looked up anxiously at Hitler and awaited his reply. Hitler was silent for a moment. He then looked up and said, Tell the Duce that I accept his proposal. Adolf Hitler, at the appeal of Mussolini, a mere two hours before his ultimatum against Czechoslovakia was set to expire, agreed to postpone his invasion for 24 hours so that the major powers could come together and attempt peaceful negotiations one last time. Invitations from Germany were sent out to Italy, France, and England to meet in Munich at noon tomorrow to settle the question of Czechoslovakia once and for all. Just after four o'clock, British Prime Minister Chamberlain was making his address to Parliament, still unaware if his message to Hitler had any effect. Parliament, like everyone else in Britain, feared that war was imminent, and this was Chamberlain's last speech before Hitler's ultimatum was set to expire. The situation is still uncertain, he said. And just as he was nearing the end of his speech, standing on the floor of the House chamber, he was handed a note. The Prime Minister stopped speaking and read the note carefully. It was the news from Berlin that Hitler had agreed to the conference. Chamberlain smiled. The house grew quiet. Chamberlain broke the silence. I have something further to say to the house yet. I have now been informed that I have been invited by Herr Hitler to meet with him in Munich tomorrow, with France and Italy together. I need not say what my answer will be. The place went nuts. The anxiety, the fear, the certainty of war now seemed like it could actually be overcome. There was a second chance to stop all of this from happening. An elated House of Commons shouted a hearty, Well done! to their Prime Minister, and began to let a small amount of air out of their lungs. When the news of the conference made its way across the Atlantic, the President of the United States sent a telegram to Chamberlain's office with only two words. Good man. But up on the high seats of the chamber stood a man who was not cheering. He was not relieved. He couldn't believe what he was seeing. He looked at the men around him, celebrating, erupting at their stay of execution and a chance to get off scot-free. The man was the foreign minister of Czechoslovakia. As the session winded down, the Czech official walked up to the prime minister and asked him, has Czechoslovakia been invited to this conference, whose future it is that is being decided? Chamberlain said, No, I'm sorry. Czechoslovakia was not invited. Hitler just would not allow it. The Czech minister looked long in silence at Chamberlain. He then said to the British leader solemnly, if you have sacrificed my nation to preserve the peace of the world, I will be the first to applaud you. But if you are wrong, sir, may God have mercy on your soul. The meeting to preserve the peace of the world was on. 
We'll be right back. Hey, it's Michael. Thank you for listening to How to Start a War. If the story so far has been meaningful to you, please share it with someone else. And if you haven't already, please subscribe and write us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you found us. And thanks again. Now, back to the story. Today is the day. We're in Munich. A city where, 15 years ago, a nervous young man stood outside of a bar, wrestling with his own anxieties. The nervous young man with a radical plan to overthrow the government by a military coup. A city that met that nervous young man's challenge and rejected him outright, who spewed him from its mouth in a fatal, embarrassing defeat of a fanatic. A city that showed the world that even in the middle of a crisis, radical racism and violent extremism had no place on their streets. A city that, today, would become the venue of one of the most consequential negotiations in human history. The negotiation that would be conducted not by a nervous young man, but by a brutal dictator who had schemed, lied, and murdered his way to the apex of consolidated power. On one side of the negotiations was Hitler, but in reality, it was Hitler and Mussolini. On the other side of the negotiation was British Prime Minister Chamberlain and French Prime Minister Edouard de Laurier. When Chamberlain arrived, he looked tired, but newly energized. He got to the meeting at noon and had an optimistic smile on his face. The French Prime Minister looked very different, deflated, uncomfortable, as if he knew what he was about to do, but didn't want to do it. The French leader walked into the building slowly. He was not smiling. Thirty minutes later, all members of the negotiations gathered in the large conference room, Germany, Italy, Britain, and France, to decide the fate of Czechoslovakia, who was not even allowed in the room. Hitler spoke first. Bluntly. Let me be clear, he began, that the oppression of Germans living in Czechoslovakia will not stand. On October 1st, the Sudeten Germans will be liberated by the German army. The purpose of this meeting is to make it clear that this is not an aggressive act. A typical violent start by Hitler. And how did the British and French meet this tirade? It was not in a firm defense of their ally, but instead, they fell over themselves to agree with what Hitler was saying, to show their willingness to see this as a regional dispute, settling a localized issue of cultural borders, nothing more. It was then time for Mussolini, playing the role of the gracious mediator, to propose a solution. He pulled out four copies of a document. In order to bring a practical solution to the problem, I have brought with me a written proposal. The proposal was handed out to the four leaders. In the proposal was everything Hitler wanted. It was identical to the proposal that Hitler had made in his last meeting with Chamberlain that all the countries had already rejected. That the invasion was to be allowed. That the Sudeten region could be fully occupied by Hitler on October 10th. That the Czechs living there were to abandon their homes peacefully that the British or French would not respond military or politically, and that there would be complete cooperation by the Czech government. Of course, even though it seemed like it was Mussolini proposing the so-called peace deal, it wasn't really Mussolini's proposal at all. It wasn't written by the Italians. It was written by Hermann Göring, Hitler's second-in-command. 
It was then translated to the Italians, who wrote it up on their own stationery, just before leaving for Munich. It was all a charade designed to make it look like this proposal was coming from a neutral party, to mask the fact that Hitler was getting everything he wanted. The proposal was read and then accepted by everyone in the room. In order to fully execute the agreement, especially the part where the Czechs had to abandon their homes in the Sudetenland, they needed a Czech representative to agree as well. Chamberlain and Deladier suggested inviting Czech diplomats to join them and sign the agreement. But Hitler refused, even to be in the presence of Czech officials. He wouldn't even allow them into the room. Chamberlain then asked if they would at least be allowed into the room next door so that they could be informed of their obligations there. Hitler did not protest. And so the two Czech diplomats were called in from their embassies, where they were quickly ushered into the room next to the negotiations and waited to hear the news. They were kept waiting for five hours. At seven o'clock, a lower-level British aide finally entered the room to give them the bad news. The British aide looked grim and closed the door behind him. He remained standing as he spoke to the Czech representatives. An agreement has been reached, the British aide said, but the terms were much harsher than we wanted. The Czechs seemed to know what was coming next. One of them replied in a raised voice, as if to stop the next words out of the British aide's mouth. Will we, as representatives of Czechoslovakia, have any voice in this agreement that has been reached? The British aide turned up his nose. You don't seem to realize the gravity of the situation between these great powers. You simply do not understand how difficult it is to negotiate with Hitler. Both of the Czech diplomats raised their voices now. Sir, we must protest! But they were interrupted by the British aide. We have nothing else to add at this time. Three hours later, at 10 o'clock at night, a more senior advisor to Chamberlain entered the room with the Czech diplomats. He carried with him the final terms of the agreement, along with a map. On behalf of the British Prime Minister, I will lay out the points of the final agreement to you. He then did, pointing at the map. He went on to say, The Czech government will be required to surrender the Sudeten region to Germany completely and immediately. It was worse than the Czechs could have imagined. It would shrink the Czech-German frontier on all sides. The mountain fortifications, the impenetrable wall of hidden artillery built to keep the Germans out, would now become German territory. It was like giving the Great Wall of China to the Mongol invaders. Czechoslovakia, on this new map, would not only become a smaller nation, but also completely defenseless. The Czech diplomats began to sputter their outrage at the terms, but the British aide cut them off. Gentlemen, there is nothing more to say. He then got up and walked out of the room, leaving his staff to finish up. The Czechs couldn't believe it. They both stood up out of their chairs, shouting at the lower British officials who were still in the room. But then he cut them off as well. Listen to me. If you do not accept, you will have to settle your affairs with the Germans absolutely alone. He continued. Perhaps the French will tell this to you in a more gentle way, but you can believe me that they share our views. They are disinterested. The British officials stood up and prepared to leave. Wait, said the Czech diplomat. Reality began to sink in. They were staring down the barrel of a gun, and no one was standing beside them. They had been abandoned, and there were no options left.
back in the main room, the heads of state were informed that the Czechs would agree to sign the terms. At 1.30 in the morning, Hitler of Germany, Chamberlain of Great Britain, Mussolini of Italy, and Deladier of France signed what would become known as the Munich Agreement and sealed the fate of Czechoslovakia. Hitler had just been given permission to march across the Czechoslovakian border and occupy the Sudetenland on October 1st, the day Hitler had always wanted. The Munich Conference was over. Germany would be allowed to invade tomorrow. Night fell over Europe. the bright straight road towards a new understanding in Europe. And so at Hitler's Munich headquarters, the agreement that has made the biggest headlines since the armistice. Let no man say that too high a price has been paid for the peace of the world until he has searched his own soul and found himself willing to risk war and the lives of those nearest and dearest to him. Let no man criticize the bargain that the statesmen of Britain and France have struck until he has attempted to add up the total price that might have had to be paid for any other settlement, a price in death and destruction. That price will not be paid. There will be peace. It's the greatest diplomatic triumph of modern time. The scene changes to London, as Downing Street expresses the nation's gratitude, also to the lady who shares the Prime Minister's hopes and fears, when Mrs Chamberlain comes out for a walk in the park. And the Prime Minister comes home, home to an empire filled with joy and relief, home to a welcome that he will never forget. The next morning, the man who left his country a few days ago to heckles and boos landed back in London to cheers of a returning, conquering hero. The newsreel of Chamberlain's return at the airfield read, The man who has saved us from the greatest war of all. He stepped out of the door of the airplane with a warm smile, pleasantly surprised to see the crowd there, but also glad that they recognized his effort. As he walked through the crowd, he shook hands as the cheers went on. First, I want to say that the settlement of the Czechoslovakian problem, which has now been achieved, is, in my view, only the prelude to a larger settlement in which all Europe may find peace. Later that day, he would meet an even bigger crowd gathering outside of his balcony at Downing Street, and he would speak the words that would define his legacy forever. My good friends, for the second time in our history, a British Prime Minister has returned from Germany bringing peace with honor. I believe that it is peace for our time. the world would exhale a sigh of relief. Peace in our time. The peace would last for 20 more days. Factor five in how to start a war is appeasement. None of the Allied powers wanted a war. The mere thought of returning to the hellscape of death of which the Great War was remembered was unthinkable. The Allied powers would do just about anything to avoid it, even sacrificing one of their closest allies. Hitler's threats were not empty. He was mobilizing a full-scale invasion from Germany and Czechoslovakia. If an agreement were not reached, Hitler would almost certainly invade. And so it must be said that the Allies were not negotiating against themselves. It would have been an invasion. It would have been a war. But it would have been a war that Germany would have ultimately lost. 
And yet, the Allies rescued Hitler from this fate, and in the process gave him everything he wanted in the late-night negotiations of Munich. With absolutely no input from the Czechs, Germany, Britain, Italy, and France sealed the fate of Czechoslovakia by giving Germany the Sudetenland, home of their great factories and its impenetrable mountain fortifications, to the very man they were trying to keep out. It was the appeasement of Hitler by the Allied powers that destroyed what was possibly the last opportunity to stop Hitler in his tracks and still avoid a prolonged war. Hitler would now have free reign to wipe the rest of Czechoslovakia off the map, along with the many Jewish people that inhabited it. Next time on How to Start a War. How to Start a War is written and produced by me. I'm Michael Trapani. Thanks for listening.